Well, hello again. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, great. Yes, uh, I was hopefully using our time wisely while we were trying to get our multimedia together. Um, so thank you for cooperating. Um, just quickly, uh, just on a personal note, this will be my last Sunday here in this service for the next um, three or more weeks. Uh, next Sunday, I'm ministering in a church in Mount Helena in Forestfield. Um, and um, on Monday, the following Monday, I go into hospital for, a, for surgery and I will be out for a minimum of two weeks, possibly uh, a bit more. So I uh, just want to let you know, uh, your prayers will be appreciated. Thank you. Okay, so the last times I've preached, I've preached about Abraham, and the first life lesson that I saw in Abraham was that he was a friend of God, how God spoke about him uh, through the course of the Bible of being his friend, Old Testament and New Testament the same, that this is how God saw Abraham, and it's interesting because Abraham was the father of the faith, this is where it all began. It began with a relationship between Abraham and God. And what was that relationship? It was friendship. And so I'm led to believe that God values friendship very highly. Jesus said that I no longer said to his disciples after working with them for three years, he said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friend. And so the challenge we should take from Abraham's life and from this underlying principle that God values friendship is this. Are you friends with God? Do you have a friendship with Him? I mean, a genuine, warm, affectionate, really dig it, want to hang out with it kind of relationship with God? Or is it something a little bit more religious? Something that you compartmentalize? Men are great compartmentalizers. Uh, This is what we do naturally. And so I just want to ask you, is, is Jesus in a box? Is church in a box? Is he one of the compartments of your life? Or is he truly your friend? And friends, it's, it's not, there's no program to friendship, is there? There's not much in the way of routine to friendships, unless, of course, you do something together every week when you train or you do whatever. Um, you, know, you hear what I'm saying. Friendship is a dynamic that starts in the heart and works out practically. So I would ask you if you are friends with God, if that's how you would define your relationship or describe your relationship with God, because I think that's what God's looking for. The second thing that I shared with you about Abraham when I preached a little while ago was that Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham had a faith in God that set him apart from everyone else. God chose him because he saw that this was a man who would trust him despite all the obvious reasons not to. Abraham was 90 years old. He considered himself dead in his body. He was impotent. He had, there's no way he could produce offspring. And God said to him, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And at 90 years old, this old This old dude decided that he would believe God. Okay. 
I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be like at 90. If I'm going to be around at 90, I'm not sure. But I hope that I'd be like Abraham and go, well, that sounds like a great idea. I think I'll give that a go, God. And as a result of his incredible faith and his incredible trust in God, we stand here today, the offspring of Abraham, part of the family of faith. And the underlying principle that I would take out of that is, do I have the kind of faith that somebody would say is radical? I would say Abraham's faith was radical. To want to start a family at 90, and eventually it happened at 100 years old, to want to start a family at 100? Wow. Uh, I don't know if I... (laughs) You know what? I heard something very profound. You have girls to keep them, and you have boys to get rid of them. Hear what I'm saying? I've got two teenage boys. I'm looking forward to the day when they are old enough to go away. I love them. I love them. I know they'll come back. But you know what? They use my couch. They eat the food out of my fridge. They take my remote control. I can't watch my rugby because they're watching something else on TV. Um, You know, they make demands on my time and my energy. They don't do the things I ask them to do, and they do do the things I don't ask them to do. And I'm looking forward to the day when it's like, goodbye, go be a man in your own house. Go do this in your own place. Okay, but girls are different. Girls, you know, they, they love you and they want to look after you and they want to make you a cup of tea and they want to, they want to you know, they, they are, yeah, yeah. No, leave me, leave me in my illusion. It's working for me. It's working for me. So girls, you want to keep, boys, you want to send out. But at 100 years old, I don't want to do that all again. That's madness. And... Would somebody look at me and say, Paul, you have a radical faith. Like what you do is pretty much mad. Would they say that? And I believe that's the kind of faith we should aspire to. Some of you have left your country, your family, everything, and have come to a new country to start again because you believe God told you to. That's mad. That's radical. That's awesome. Please don't stop being mad, radical, and awesome now that you've arrived. Go to the next level. And some of you, you haven't done that. That hasn't been your story. But as Aussies, you've made the decision to be Christians and go to church regularly. That's radical. That is mad. That is so insane. Why aren't you out on your boat, in your caravan, in your four-wheel drive, on your toys, playing all weekend like everyone else does. Why are you going to church? You're insane. No, you've got radical faith. That's good. Take it to the next level. Now, for some of you, uh, you're kind of balancing, playing, and praying. You're coming to church once or twice, and you're going playing, playing, playing. I just want to encourage you. Uh, come to church more often. We love you. We'd like to see you more often. Amen. Yeah, come on. Okay, no, no, never mind. All right. So the third 
The third principle that I want to look at out of Abraham's life is that God said to him, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise with you, a covenant, an unbreakable promise with you, and you are going to be a father of many nations. You are going to be a father of a nation. And he speaks this word, Abraham believes him, and and something is set into place that arrives us at the point we are in our journey. And I want to show you what this is. Genesis 17.4, God said, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, Abraham, and you shall be a father of many nations. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter picks up on this idea of being a nation, and he calls what is then the multinational church, he calls them a holy nation. I'm getting signals. What is the signal? Okay, apparently you can't read that. Pardon? Move to the front if you can't read that. If you can't read that, you're at the front. Here are my glasses. (laughs) Okay, the scriptures. I'm not there yet, so just just, that's okay. Just, just, Just hang five. So Peter picks up, I'm I'm trying to explain here that this is a multinational church. I love the fact that we're getting live feedback this morning. It's awesome. Thank you. And uh, this is a multinational church by the time Peter is is saying this. It's got Jews, Greeks, um, uh, Syrians, Turks, what we know as today. Um, It's got um, people from the islands, um, Cyprus. Greece, etc. There there are Christians from all of these nations, African nations too. And he says to them, you are a holy nation. He calls them one nation, not the political party. So I want to ask, if this is who we are, if God said to Abraham at the beginning, I'm going to make you the father of a nation, If Peter, the Apostle Peter, at the beginning of the church says, you are a holy nation, if this is true, then today we are the nation of God. We we are called the people of God. Our nation is God, heaven, Christianity. And so I want to ask you, what does that mean? What does it mean for you to be part of the nation of the people of God? What does it mean to you to be part of the nation of the kingdom of God? Do you understand? Do you know what that is? And uh, now we can go to that scripture with, uh, to that slide with those scriptures on. So we see Moses picks it up in Exodus 19.6, and he says to the people of Israel, you shall be a kingdom of priests to God, a holy nation. Peter said again, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people. Revelation 1.6, Jesus says this to the church, God has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Okay? So I want you to understand that if you're going to take on the identity of being a Christian, then you are becoming part of the nation that is the people of God. And the nation, to be in the nation of the kingdom of God, you must be both a king and a priest. This is how you, are, you function in the kingdom of God. It is both an upward and an outward function. We are priests unto God and we are priests for God. 
We are kings unto God and we are kings for God. So if we're a kingdom of priests, there's something you need to know about that. Let me just give you an idea. Priests long for the bedroom. Kings long for the boardroom. There are people in this room who for you the priestly function, the identity of being in the the nation of God and being a priest and a king hasn't even happened for you yet, but it is... It is in you, it was imparted into you when you were born again. So you're unconsciously operating in this way. You, didn't, you don't know you're it, you're just being it. And so you're going to find you have a, a tendency towards one side or the other. You have a tendency to be more of a priest or you have a tendency to be more of a king. Priests long for the bedroom, kings long for the boardroom. Priests love to worship and pray. They love the idea of drawing near and of being intimate to God and of hearing from Him and of feeling Him and sensing Him and of being filled by Him. They love the romance of this relationship with their God and they love to minister to God. So when you're in a church service, the priests are like, woohoo, worship, yeah, shandabanda, yeah. And some of them are like really expressive. As priests, they get the shakes and the rattle and the rolls while it's going on because they just got goosebumps for getting close to Jesus. And so there's people who this is their high end function. But then there are kings. There are kings who during the worship process are like tapping their fingers on the chair going, when is this going to end? Can we just move this one along? Is there a fast forward button in this church? That was very good. That was very good. Stop now. Okay, there are kings who have, that is the how that, why? Because we're waiting for the word. We're waiting for the instruction. We're waiting for the strategy. We want to hear, God, what is it you want me to do? What is it you want me to say? I've got things I want to accomplish for you. I've got things I want to do for you. And there are people in the, in the kingdom of God who this is their end. They're very good at being kings. I know I'm making a very big generalization here, and I'm saying that you could split the nation of God in two, and you could have priests on one side and kings on the other side. Now, there's all sorts of variances and vagaries in that, but essentially, this is our identity. This is who we are, kings and priests. We don't need to be either or. We need to be both. The goal is that we'll be both. Why do I say that? Because intimacy produces multiplication power. Priests understand this. Intimacy produces multiplication power. You are, we are part, we are witnessing that exact phenomenon this morning. Carrie's about to have a baby. Intimacy produced multiplication power. You get intimate with God, you're going to birth things. You're going to get pregnant. You're going to catch a vision. You're going to catch the heartbeat of God, and you're going to carry something for God. That's why intercessors love the role of intercession because they're continually being impregnated by the vision of God, continually carrying something for God and bringing it to birth. And there is no greater miracle, no greater joy than a child being born, isn't there? It's life-changing. And so it is for us as the priests of God that we find power in through intimacy with God. Jesus said it. Isaiah 61 is our scripture for the year. Jesus said in Luke 4.18, when he came on the scene, he said, 
This, he's, he quoted the scripture, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has empowered me to go and do things. How did he get that? Well, just prior to Luke 4 was Luke 3, and he had been spending 40 days fasting and praying in the wilderness. He had taken time out to get away from the busyness and the hecticness of life and seek his God and draw near to his God and become intimate with his God. And after 40 days of pushing through and resisting the devil as the devil came to give him a quick fix, an easy solution, a fast forward button, Mate, I can get you out of here. I know fasting is really uncomfortable. If you'll just bow down before me and worship me, I'll give you what you're after. I'll give you the power you're seeking. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm getting intimate with my father. I don't want you to be a distraction anymore. I'm drawing near to God. I don't need a quick fix. What I need is time with my heavenly father. And when he came out of the wilderness and the Holy Spirit came on him, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit's power to go and do ministry. So if you are today, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, what's wrong with me? I'm, I seem to have a powerless Christian life. I, I can't seem to like, do any ministry. It doesn't really flow for me. It's not really happening for me. Well, I want to tell you, inside of you is a priest waiting to draw near to the bedroom with God. Inside of you is someone, who, the, the imprint of God calling you saying, come near to me and I will fill you with power. Come and be a priest, minister to me, so that I can fill you up so you can minister to others. But, like I said, it isn't one or the other, it's both. Proverbs 24.3 says that by wisdom a city is built, by strategy and understanding it is established. So, when we are called to do something for God, there are so many people who have been in the priestly role and they've received this desire to be a minister and they run out with absolutely no plan, no strategy, no boundaries, no clue. They're just like a blazing torch. Point me in a direction and I'm going to go. I used to be one of those. I was, I was full on for Jesus, and I just wanted to evangelize everybody and anything in my view. I, I just, you know, if you happened to roll through, mate, you were going to hear about it. Like if you said, gee, it's hot today, that was my in. Because I would say, you know what else is hot? Hell is hot. And if you don't know Jesus, you might go to hell. And I would evangelize everything and anything in my sight. I had no strategy. I had no plan. I had no clue. I probably burnt more people than I won for the Lord, if I think about it. And so we've got to learn. We've got to grow as kings. We've got to understand that there is a time and a season for everything. And there is a strategy and a plan that God has. We love this scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. How many of you know that scripture? And it greatly encourages you. You go, that's awesome. God's got plans for me and they're all good. Yes, but the focus, the emphasis is on the word plan. He says it numerous times. I've got plans. What are plans? They're a blueprint. They're the drawing of what might be one day if you do the work according to the plan. If you don't build according to the plan, you're not going to get the finished product of what the plan intended. 
And so we have Christians who don't bother about strategy or plan. They're just good builders. They just look, let's go dig a hole. And magically, something will appear. Yes, dirt. And so as kings, we've got to become disciplined and focused and take the time to study, to understand and say, what is it God wants me to do with this incredible gift and this power that he's put inside of me? What is it going to take for it to become realized and actualized? That's why Paul says to a young man, Timothy, he says, study to show yourself approved as a workman for the gospel. There's a plan for your life, Timothy. He said, don't forget the prophecies that were given you by the elders when they laid hands on you when you were young. Don't forget those prophecies because at that point, God spoke about what his intentions were for you. And then Paul says, now go and study so that you can become an approved worker. Go and discipline yourself. Get a plan, Timothy. Work the plan so that you can end up where God wants you to end up. You see, in the nation of the kingdom of God, This is what the processes are all the time. You can go to any church, any place around the world, and the same kind of processes will be happening. God will have a process of drawing you near to him to impregnate you, a priestly role, come and get close to me. And God will have processes of discipleship and mentoring and fathering. That's why he put us all in families. The family is the micro picture of the big picture of what it means to be in the nation of God. Because families, if you don't have a plan of how you're raising your children, it's going to be chaos. You're going to be reacting to every crisis. Rather than plotting a course and saying, crisis come, crisis go, we are heading on a, on a course that God's given us. And so the kingly function needs to come into all of our lives at every point. It changes the way we think about family. It changes the way we think about career. It changes the way we think about our ministry. It affects all of that. And so as a young person, you get all excited about the call of God. You, woohoo, I got, you know, we were at the camp and we got a download and shaboom and shabang and woohoo and it's awesome. And I just want to do that for the rest of my life. Okay. The thing is, there's a process to putting on a camp like that. And it took a whole bunch of people to establish that whole system where you could experience your shaboom, shabang, shagay. And so if you want to make that your life, come on a journey with us and let us train you to be a leader in God's house. Are you listening? Are you following what I'm saying here? Is this talking to you? So... What does it mean to be the nation of God? Well, nations have particular identifying characteristics. They have a history or a heritage. They have a language. They have beliefs. They have customs. They have land. And they have government. So um, I'm going to talk to how many of you are like born and bred Aussies? Okay, cool. Are you conscious that you're Aussie all the time? Like when you're doing things, are you conscious that I'm doing this because I'm an Aussie? Or do you do a lot of things unconsciously? Okay. Did you know that Aussies are pragmatic? Like one of the high qualities that you guys carry is pragmatism. Uh, One of your favorite phrases without saying anything blue is, um, yeah, cut that 
and just give it to me straight. You know, like, don't beat around the bush. Just tell, tell me what you want to tell me. Very pragmatic, you know. And so that sort of conditions you in how you relate to people. Just get to the point. I married an Australian, and I've heard that phrase a lot. Okay, Paul, just get to the point. But I am. I'm just taking the long way. Bottom line. Hurry up. Move. Okay. So you guys all understand that. That's what being Australian is. You're not conscious of it at all. You're not going, now I'm behaving like an Aussie. You're just doing it. Okay? You, you guys, you call it the tall poppy syndrome. What you don't like is people who are proud, people who are up themselves, people who have a superior attitude. You don't like that, and you feel that it is your sovereign duty to bring them back down to earth. Okay? So one of the reasons God made you was to humble people. Get back down here like the rest of us. Okay? And so you go through life with this egalitarian approach where authority and people with position and dress differently shouldn't think more of themselves than they ought to, which is very scriptural. And it's now your job to make sure they know that. Okay? And so in a work situation, in, in any situation, you're very informal. You don't follow formalities like they do in other nations. In the nation I grew up in, anyone who was like maybe like six minutes older than you was your uncle or your auntie. All right? Anyone. Just an older person walking around was uncle and auntie. All right? Here, shock horror. G'day, mate, to your definite senior. So it's a bit of an adjustment for some of us. And, uh, but for you guys, it's quite normal. We're all, what you mean? We're all the same. We're just humans. Okay? And there are other things. Are you enjoying this? Are you enjoying finding out how Australian you are? Okay? I'm watching. I'm, I'm observing. I'm learning from you. Okay? Uh, the other thing about you, Aussies, is you're very competitive. I found this out, like you guys want to win at all costs, and you believe you're winners no matter what. I found this out watching the Sydney 2000 Olympics. It was hilarious. Now, it was, you were hosting the games, so it was very important that you won more gold medals than anyone else. Okay? So here's the classic phrase that sums up Australia. The medal tally today, USA, 164, Great Britain, 72, how they did that is a miracle. Uh, Australia, 47. And then, did you know, per capita, Australia has won more gold medals than any other nation. <laughs> and I'm listening to this going, are you serious? Like, what? Per capita? That's ridiculous. What you want to say is, if we were as big as America, we'd be better. That's what, it's so competitive. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I have become Australian. <laughs> I'm good with that too. Anyway, so, you know, you run around trying to win all the time and uh, trying to be the best at everything and beat everybody. And you, you know, like obscure facts, that some guy who's 47 and comes from Kabluka in, you know, the Purple Mountain region, uh, won the Tiddlywinks, the World Tiddlywinks Championship, and you filmed him coming through the airport. Have you noticed that about Australia? <laughs> this isn't news. This is just ridiculous. Okay, this just exemplifies the stuff that is unconsciously running through Australian culture, the nation of Australia. <laughs> and it's awesome. It's the best. It's the best nation on earth. But listen, 
when you get to heaven, there is not going to be an Australian quarter. And there's not going to be a Chinese quarter, much to my personal, you know, horror. Because my plan was to go to the Chinese quarter for meals and then go to the Papua New Guinea quarter for worship and then go to my mansion and have a nap. That was my plan for heaven. Only to discover that there are no nations in heaven. There is only one nation under one king in heaven. And so... Why am I waffling on about Australian culture? Well, what defines you and what is in you comes out of you without you even knowing it. It's only when you go to another country that you realize how Aussie you really are and how different these people are and how bad they are at sport. So to be a nation, you've got to have some identifying characteristics. I've listed a few. You've got to have history, language, beliefs, customs, land, and government. Are you happy for me to keep going here to get to a point? Okay. Trish is going to help me here. (laughs) I'm getting there. We're just having fun along the way. That's what we do in my culture. (laughs) Okay. Oh, dear. So... History, the history, right, you are in the nation of God, you're one of the people of God, you have a history. The history of the people of God is best summed up in this verse from Isaiah 54 verse 17. It says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, every tongue which rises against you in judgment you, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Listen, our history, our storybook is the Bible. And the Bible is the story of the people of God going through a whole lot of stuff and arriving at an end destination, the end of history. And this is your story. You are, one, a story of prevailing no matter what the odds. This is in you. As a new, new Christian in God, as a, as a part of the people of God, inside of you is a... Is a, is a seed that says, I'm going to win no matter what the costs. It's very Aussie, isn't it? There's another one, one of overcoming. That says, I'm go- nothing is going to get me down. I might be pressed down. I might be, cr- I might be, yeah, I'm pressed but not crushed. I am persecuted but not abandoned. I'm struck down but not destroyed. I'm blessed beyond the curse. Okay, this is what the Bible says, and it's a song, in case you want to sing it along. All you priestly types will remember it. And, um, <clears throat> and so this is the reality. This is what's inside of you. You're going to prevail, and you're going to overcome no matter what. You can't keep a good Christian down. You have a story of failing forward. That's a great, there's a book around by that name, but that's the truth. No matter what you fail at, God always redeems it and uses it for good. This is inside of you. Even when you fail, you win. How incredible is that? And you have one of assured victory. You know, no matter what, at the end of the day, yes, you can do that to me. You can steal my, you can steal my land. You can steal my wife. But you'll never take my victory. I know it's freedom, but I'm changing it today. <laughs> Everybody has to be a critic. Okay, 
So we know the ending. We're going to win. All right? So this is great news. This is inside of you. You can't help it. You're just born a winner. It's about part of being the nation of the people of God. It's good. It's good. Now, of course, um, even if you are born a champion and you, you're born to win, you, you have to train. You have to put in the work. And that's where the reality hits home of, well, you can kind of just hang out avoiding life and then you win just because you showed up. And that's possible. Or you can actually get into the game of life and you can actually bring the victory that you carry into every phase of life. That's preferable. That's the way we change the world. So then... The nation of the, of the people of God has a language. Did you know that? It is the language of love. And it's not French. It's uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our language is the language of love. When we speak, we speak patience, kindness, not envy, not pride, no boasting, no dishonoring of anyone else. We are not selfish, we are not easily angered, we keep no record of wrongs, we don't delight in evil, we rejoice in truth. We always protect those who need protecting, we always trust in the best in everybody, we always hope for the best outcome no matter what, and we always persevere. This is our native language. The Bible says that the devil and his camp have a language too. It's called the language of lies, deception. He calls him the father of all lies, and his native tongue is lying. Our father is the father of love, and his native tongue is love. I've just defined it from 1 Corinthians 13 for you. And I want to tell you that you can speak in any number of languages of this earth. If you speak in the language of men, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, the language of this, so I speak three languages and a, sm- a smidgen of a number of other languages, just enough to, to say hello and get into trouble. And then, uh, then I speak the language, of, the language of heaven, tongues of angels. But if I don't speak the language of love, I don't speak the language of my people. And so you've heard me speak about judgment. You've heard me speak about the power of the tongue. I want to remind you, this is inside of you. The power of God's love is inside of you as you become born again. And you have an opportunity to decide what language you are going to speak. Now, in my house, one of my children speaks a strange language. And um, I don't know where they learnt it, but I don't understand it. It's gibberish kind of language. And, yeah, I kind of get it, you know, like, oh, they come around and do this kind of thing. And, um, and it's very cute, but it makes no sense at all. And so you could, you could be in church and, and you could be part of this people of God, but you could be speaking a completely different language. And sometimes I feel like I'm speaking a different language as I preach. When I look at some of you, I go, I wonder if I'm speaking English. Okay, but, um, but you could be speaking a completely different language because you haven't submitted your life to the new nationality that you have of being a Christian. And the part of your life that you haven't submitted 
yet is your tongue. And it might be that in order for you to fully embrace being part of this nation of the people of God, you might have to give God your tongue and say, God, I want to speak your language, not anyone else's. Okay, again, another characteristic of being in the nation of God is that we have beliefs. So what are the basic beliefs of Christianity? So I lifted this from the Nicene Creed. There are four key things that the Nicene Creed says. It says we believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. There are some churches who I believe are not part of the nation of God because they, dis- they disavow one of, or two of those people. Um, we also say that we believe in the death, the descent into hell, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. Over Easter, we're going to be celebrating that and looking at that. It's going to be awesome. We believe in the holiness of the church and the communion of the saints. The common union, the community that we have around, um, around communion is so powerful. We believe in this. Uh, we believe in Christ's second coming, the day of judgment, and the salvation of the faithful. These are our unifying beliefs. Either you believe these things or you're not part of the nation of God. Hello? Did he just say that or think that out loud? No, I said it. If you do not believe these fundamental, foundational things, and I'm not just talking about giving it head knowledge, I'm talking about really wrap your life around this. This is how you identify yourself by your belief system. Australians identify themselves by their belief system where they say that we're a secular nation, a separation of church and state. We give all religions the opportunity to express themselves and we give freedom of religion. This is, how, this is their belief system. We're such a noble people that we will allow you to believe what you want to believe, essentially. Okay, that's their belief system. You come into this nation and you want to be a, uh, a particular re- fundamental religion person, they don't like that. They will swat you down. So don't, we don't do that here. But in the, and in the nation of the people of God, we have fundamental beliefs that we wrap our lives around and we say this is the stuff that we will not negotiate on. Amos 3.3 says this, how can any two walk in agreement How can any two walk together unless they first have agreement to do so? And so what do we agree on? And so there's a lot of push at the moment in the body of Christ and and in the world to get churches and interfaith movements to come together and to to do things together um, under the banner of unity. I want to say that I cannot have unity with you unless you agree with these fundamental beliefs. I mean, I can... I can be nice to you and I can, I can serve you and I can bless you, but I will not stand with you because you're on a different foundation to me. And so this helps when the call for unification, oneness, unity comes. We're all going to get along. It's never going to happen. We're never all going to get along. We're never all going to agree because we don't all have the same foundation. So it's really important in the days ahead. I'm telling you this as the people of God. In the days ahead, it is vitally important that you sharpen up, smarten up, and you actually understand this, these basic things like the Nicene Creed. You know what they mean because something is going to come along your pathway to say, come and stand with us, and you won't know why you should or you shouldn't. So 
learn these things, understand these, and become conscious about these things that you carry as the people of God and say, no, fundamentally, this is what I believe. I cannot budge on it. Okay? Because persecution's coming. The season of blessing and abundance is not going to last forever. There is going to be persecution. You can read about it in the Bible. It is coming our way. And if, if you, I mean, why on earth would you be persecuted for something you don't actually know or understand? So find out what you believe, why you believe it, and stand on it. Then the nation of the people of God have some customs. No matter where you go in the world, you're going to find these customs in every nation around the world. You find people who are Christians want to gather together for worship and prayer. You find people who are part of the nation of God want to share the good news of salvation in Jesus. You'll find people who are part of the nation of God want to serve communities. In Matthew 22, 37 to 39, Jesus said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I found that amazing. You know, it's more than just this one people under God is more than just the gathering together and all that kind of stuff. Now, so, so what this helps with is you've got a whole lot of people who want to reinvent church. They want to reshape church. Why? Because they're a little bit bummed with the way church was wherever they were at. They got hurt. They got, they got disappointed, disillusioned. And so they want to kind of create a whole new expression of church. Why? Because it'll be better than the one that I experienced. Oh, they'll dolly it up with all sorts of reasons of why they're doing it. They've got this word, and I see this in the scriptures, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. But at the end of the day, what you want is a better version of what you had. Okay? And so, well, it's just reality. And, and so, wherever you go, you're never going to take this stuff out of the people of God. They always want to get together to worship and pray. They're always looking for a brother or a sister in the faith where they can stand together. How many of you have gone into a workplace and you kind of like looked around and gone, gee, I wonder, that person could be a Christian. You know, they behave really well. I'm pretty sure they're Christians. Anyone done that? Anyone experienced that? It's inside of you. Your radar is going, bing, 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 Christian, 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 Christian. Why? Because when I find one, we'll stand together. We'll pray together. We'll unite together. And that's what's driving us inside of us as being part of the people of God. Okay? I'm being very quick so that you don't swelter and die. Being part of the nation of God means that we will have a government. Do we have to? Yep, you do. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the, prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the people to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Listen, all government, government is a fundamental function of God, of being in the nation of God. It's built in. God is a God of order, not chaos. Desire for order produces government, laws, legislation. 
That's what it's the natural outflowing of God's order. God is therefore the God of government. I hate the government. I understand. They can be frustrating. That's why we're working hard to try and change the government for the better. Uh, But at the end of the day, God is a God of government. Every government will be on the shoulder of Jesus. He undergirds it. He holds it all up. What, even communist government? Yes. He uses communist governments for his purposes. No. How unfair. Well, I'm not sure about that one, but thank God that you have the freedoms you have and work while you have freedom. Use it. It's a privilege. It's not a right. You, you were chosen, handpicked, and selected for the family you'd be born into and the culture you'd be born into and the nation you'd be placed into. It is a privilege. Exercise all your wisdom and capacities while you have the privileges. Build up a legacy for your children. Put things in place that will benefit the entire nation. That's what's inside of us. Governing is inside of us. We govern. If you cannot govern yourself, you will not govern your family. If you cannot govern your family, you will not govern your village. If you cannot govern your village, you will not govern your town. If you cannot govern your town, you will not govern your city. If you cannot govern your city, you will not govern your nation. If you cannot govern your nation, you will not govern the nations of the earth. And our mandate is to go and make disciples of every nation. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is why it's important. Government is so important. People rebel. It's one of the traits of being an Australian. That's why you need to be born again. Because Australians are born to rebel. It's, a, it's embedded in you. Your history tells the story of rebellion. Your heroes are rebels. You know the guy with the thing and the guns and that? Okay. He's a big hero. And so this nation needs to understand, and the only way they're going to understand that is by the, the, the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God rising up and saying, we're better than that. We believe in good government. We believe in submitting to good leadership. And so every government exists and is there by God's purposes. And then there is church government too, because Jesus would not impose government on nations if he wasn't prepared to impose government on his own people. So there's church government, and there's a lot of people who struggle with that. You know, that pastor of yours is quite arrogant. He stands up there every Sunday and tells me what to do. Yeah, that's called leadership. That's my function in the body of Christ. And leaders need to tell people, this is what it says, this is how we should do it, this is where we should go, that's our job. And uh, that's part of being in the government of Christ. I'm okay with that. You're still here, so you're obviously okay with that. God bless you. I hope I'm a good leader and not a bad one. And, um, you know, and then there is the government of God over every spiritual ruler and spiritual authority. You know, you can kind of think that they're running out of control, the devil and his crew. They're just like this out of control bunch. They're not really. Every day the devil has to go and present himself to God and give an account for what he's been doing. How humiliating is that? How that must 
eat him up. Because he stood up and he said, I will be like God. I'll take your place. And he managed to confuse one third of the angels to join him in this pointless riot and rebellion. And now one of the consequences is he's got to go and stand before God. And God says, so, Lucifer, what you been up to? Where you been roaming around? Because, unfortunately, you are so restless, you're never going to find peace. Your job, your daily job is to roam around looking for trouble. And so even the spiritual rulers, the highest spiritual ruler of the enemy's camp, the devil himself, has to give an account, has to come under the government of God. Isn't that interesting? Hey? So we as a very spiritually minded church who talk about demons and talk about spiritual rulers and authorities, we're not intimidated by them. We're not afraid of them. We don't give them more credit than they do. We can acknowledge the facts. Yes, they're working and they're doing trouble. We get that. But we have a greater authority. And we submit to a greater authority. We come under the government of Christ. And so when Jesus says, stop it, they have to stop. And when Jesus says, be bound, they're bound up. When Jesus says, be loosed, they're loosed. And so we don't have to fight for our authority. We have to be the authority. But again, you're not going to exercise any kind of power over the spiritual realm if you can't exercise power over your own natural realm. That's why it's really important to know this is inside of you. This is what you're wired to do as a Christian. This is what the seeds of the kingdom produce in your life. You will always be looking for leadership. Always. It's inside of you. You're looking, what is the leader saying? Let's do that. That's the nobility that's been embedded in you of being part of the kingdom of God. I'm using big words sometimes. Are you okay with that? Okay. Uh, um, Because, like, we've got a higher calling here. We need to rise to it. And then, as a result of God having all of this governmental power, He makes judgments. And so all of his judgments are righteous and true. So everything God says and everything God does is right. And so you might struggle with that reality. But I want to tell you this, no matter how long you struggle with it, embedded inside of you is the knowledge that as a person who's a part of the people of God, whatever God does is right. Even if it feels unfair, cruel, and harsh, that's how it feels to you or felt to you. You had some major grief, you had some major loss, and you go, how could God do this to me? Embedded inside of you is the seed of the knowledge that everything he does is right and true. And at some point in your life, if you stay being part of the nation of the people of God, you're going to come back to God and you're going to say, my God, how wrong I was, how right you were. Everything you do is right and good. Might be a process for you. You might be struggling with his government right now, but it is, that is where it will end if you stay part of the people of God. Thank you. So how should we respond this morning to this sort of information? Matthew 6, 9 and 10, Jesus said, well, you should pray. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what? How many of you know the prayer, Our Father? You know that one? Okay. If you just do these lines, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you just do that on a daily basis and you really mean it, 
you really submit your life to it and you just say that. I want to tell you, your entire life is going to pivot on the back of that kind of a prayer. You're going to see the kingdom of God moving through you. It's, very, it's, it's achingly simple, but it's very difficult to do. It takes an enormous amount of discipline and focus to live in the nation of God. And so what should you do? Well, you could pray like that. You could believe the kingdom message of Jesus. You could actually believe this stuff. And there's nothing more dangerous than a Christian who believes the stuff that they believe. Uh, so you, you could actually believe it and not just be an Aussie or an immigrant or a worker or a mother or a whatever, but you could actually be a person who has been brought into the nation of God for a purpose. I mean, that would change everything. Um, <clears throat> you could believe that. And then you could begin to pray the kingdom advancing prayer of Jesus. Because the Bible says that the kingdom of heaven is advancing all the time. And the ones who advance it are people who violently take hold of it. And so you, when you start to pray that prayer, you are violently taking a hold of something that is much bigger than you. And you are wrestling with it like, like Jacob wrestled with God. And you will be forever changed when you wrestle that destiny down. And you might walk with a limp as a result. You might be different as a result. Your name might change. Your whole identity might change. That's what a name is, identity. It might all change and pivot on you beginning to really pray that thing into being. If you've got a problem on your hands that is weighing you down, maybe a child, maybe a, a relationship, maybe a work or financial thing, you know what I mean about violently praying the kingdom of God into place. You know what I mean. You've been doing it. You've been warring, fighting for the victory of God to come. That's how the kingdom of God advances. It does not advance by passivity. The kingdom of God is not going to advance because you came to church this morning. The kingdom of God is going to advance because you chose to do something with what you heard this morning. And then you can act as though God is answering your prayer. That's the faith Abraham had. And I want to bring us back to that point. Would you like to close your eyes? Just give God a minute to speak into your soul. Heavenly Father, there's a lot I have said about being in your nation. I pray, Lord, that the one key thing that you want every individual to hear would now echo in their heart. 